Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of ESG Climate and Money Show. Today, we have very special guest. He is ETF person, the mo- maybe one of the most famous person in the world of ETFs. And we are going to uh, build today's stories about the ETFs. And there is going to be a lot of interesting discussion about the ETFs and what happens when the ETF uh, have uh, this ESG dynamics come into it. But uh, I would say welcome to our guest, Mr. Herbert Blank. Uh, Welcome, Herbert. uh, Hope you are well. And can you please introduce us uh, a little bit? Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Sonny. I wouldn't say one of the most famous persons in the world in ETFs, but I certainly will uh, plead guilty to being one of the most veteran people there. I was the first portfolio manager of ETFs in the United States back in 1996 when Deutsche Bank uh, launched the country baskets. And I managed nine individual country uh, funds based on FTSE indices at that time. Fast forward to 1997 to 2000, and I helped launch the iShares, was on the lead external consulting team for the iShares for what was then called BGI, now part of BlackRock. And, and then I worked with the World Gold Council to help launch GLD, which is a depository receipt, if you will, on gold. It is, and this is another thing that I get a little upset about Gold is not an exchange-traded fund in that it is not a 40-act mutual fund. It is an exchange-traded commodity. It is a depository receipt on gold in a vault. And as such, in the U.S., that has major implications because the tax rate for capital gains is is much higher. Wow. Uh, Wonderful, uh, Herbert. Uh, Thank you for the introduction. So let's uh, jump in in the juicy part. So tell us, walk us through... um, the the ETFs uh, ecosystem. What uh, I know there are rating agencies which are important, especially in the ESG space. Then we have the data issues, which are not really kind of this is contradictory, and there is a lot of problem when people want to choose it. We have the tracking error. Tell us about this uh, three sixty degree ETF ecosystem. Um, I hope you understand my question. Yes, I do. And uh, you mentioned LinkedIn, which is probably the easiest place for people to get it. I have a, an article on LinkedIn that you can uh, click on my profile and click very quickly on the article, checking the boxes in ESG versus actually investing in sustainability and impact investing. And there are more than 100 US listed, and I think may, perhaps even more in Europe, ESG themed ETFs in one way or the other. Everything from just uh, taking a little screen on ESG and and taking out the 50% of most egregious offenders, which has value. I'm not saying it doesn't. But if you're an impact investor or you're interested in climate, having ExxonMobil in your portfolio, even if it happens to be the cleanest of the energy uh, companies in the group, doesn't exactly make you feel good about your investment. So, uh, so we run the gamut from that to ones that are extremely specialized in very micro areas of uh, environmental investing, of social investing, and of governance investing. 
Very nice. So the, uh, so it's almost about, I think, 350 billion uh, US dollar is being invested in this uh, ESG ETFs, I think. And this space is, the sp space is growing a lot. And I, I, I recently read this paper from uh, Dr. Linda Shang, and she was also giving this uh, uh, suggestions um, that, that we should not be taking this ESG rating agencies uh, when it comes to judging the ETFs uh, so uh, comprehensively. And that, 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 that brings me to the other question. Then if this, the, the major source of uh, the, judging the ETFs is through this, still the rating agencies. So if we don't really have the full overview and we cannot really understand like the complete um, uh, complete performance of that ETF when it comes to their ESG performance, then what do you think based on your experience, what are we left with when we want to judge these uh, ESG ETFs? There isn't consensus, which you know can be good and bad about many things. And the devils are always in the details. And that's what, why I wrote the best practices paper. And that's what, why it, it goes from there. First of all, even using the word ESG agencies, which is a term in Europe they use a, a lot, is you know, not 100% accurate unless all you're talking about is the Moody's and S&P ESG efforts, which are really Johnny-come-lately compared to the data providers and those that have been out there substantiating ESG for many years, uh, led by MSCI and then Sustainalytics, uh, Thomson Reuters, which bought a company called Asset4 and interpreted that. And that said, I've worked the most intimately personally with, but I've worked with all of them. And, uh, and then that, that has been followed by Bloomberg. It's been followed by uh, um, uh, a number of others. There's a fourth major one I'm, I'm missing right now. But uh, that, and now there are like uh, more than 24 independent ESG providers. And there are a lot of issues with all of this. MSCI in particular has been accused of, and you know, statistically it's a valid uh, accusation, of having a large cap bias. They're more prone to give a stronger rating to a larger cap company than a small cap company. Sustainalytics for years had more limited coverage in trying to catch up on that coverage, there have been some data errors that have been spotted. And again, I'm a fan of all of these efforts. Before MSCI got in here full, full tilt in, my, in 2009, there were like independent companies like Governance Metrics and one that I worked with, Invest Strategic Advisors, which became the E in MSCI's E, et cetera, et cetera. But there was no real institutional adherence to what was going on. So kudos to MSCI and Henry Fernandez and the whole group, Linda Ling Lee, for putting this together. Any minor criticisms or things I'm taking here should be taken in that context. They did a great service to the investment community for making this, for creating one way to standardize this so we could go from there. Okay. But yes, there are different ways of looking at this. There are different prejudices and lights. One huge difference between Europe, which has regulatory requirements and the US, which is, you know, sort of, we would like you to take best efforts if you get a chance, please. Uh, in, the, in the US, most mid-cap companies and small-cap companies can still get away with the excuse, oh, we don't produce sustainability reports and we don't answer questionnaires because it's just too expensive for us to do so. 
which, you know, <laughs> in a global developed markets context sounds ludicrous, and it is, but, you know, America, U.S. is still late to the party and the standards being kept here and the uh, doctrines being kept here uh, are very much behind the curve, even if the massive amount of money we have is ahead of the curve. <laughs> or is, I you know, absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. It's, it's because the, all these um, the ratings are being uh, are being built upon how much the, the companies are providing the data. And of course, if they are not interested to provide the data, they take it as a waste of time. Then, of course, there will be biased build up in these uh, ratings eventually. Uh, really agree on this. But now there, but, uh, there are... Yes, so If I may just interject, Sonny, to finish a thought. When you use the word agency in Europe, it is a different... And most Europeans I know do. It's a very interesting kind of thing because since these frameworks have been adopted into the laws and the regulatory in Europe, yes, it can be thought of as agencies. Mm -hmm. But here... And how they originated, these are just merely data providers that never sought necessarily to become regulatory agents. <laughs> That's agents. very, very interesting. Very, uh, very different from S&P and Moody's, right? Which, mm -hmm. uh, which became, you know, front and center of the uh, uh, financial uh, sector meltdown and the uh, poison assets uh, debacle in the, in the uh, 2007, 2008 area where they basically prostituted their imprimaturs in that area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is very, very interesting insight, especially comparing the, the Europe and US in this context. Uh, but related to this ETF ESG products, uh, so far what we understand is that we have thematic type of e ETFs, as you previously also talked about based on S and E and G and many other things. So, and we have this other ETFs, which could be still ESG ETFs, but they could be the mix. What do you think? What are the best uh, in, in, in this uh, regard? Who are the best performing uh, ones? Well, one that has uh, uh, performed uh, very well is ESGA by American Century here in the US. I haven't done a full critique of European uh, ESG. The value engine blogs are are made primarily at U.S. investors because that's primarily what we cover there. Uh, there are a number of very good, obviously. Amundi does uh, does a number of good products in this area. Han ETF has one very good ESG ETF that I'm aware of, but I haven't really done a full breakdown and critique. In the U.S., one one of the best. Uh, uh, has been uh, one called ESGA, which uh, is an American century product that uh, uses active management. Uh, ECOZ is an excellent one that I own per personally own some shares at, full disclosure. <laughs> Very minor amount of shares. <laughs> and uh, that's the one ma managed by Dr. Zhang by a very interesting uh, company called True Shares, run by Michael Happ. That's another story uh, on ETF parlance, but uh, they do a very good job in tracking down uh, managers that are sort of off the beaten path and have done a very good job in ETFs. And that is what Heather Bell and uh, Jennifer, Jessica Ferringer and some of the others have also looked at the dichotomy here. In, um, in very efficient, 
uh, major asset space, it is extremely difficult for an active manager to outperform the the uh, cap weighted indexes in uh, in uh, asset management. The ETF structure levels the playing field. Some another issue that I've talked about and have papers on, but it's about two hundred basis points more efficient for the end investor here in the U.S. than the uh, antiquated forty uh, act structure where the manager has to make trades based on daily cash flows, which is a killer. So okay. But beyond that, in the ESG space, though, active management so far looks like it has an edge. And it looks like it also can be have an edge both in performance, but maybe more importantly, an edge in knowing and being ahead of the curve and in, in, uh, avoiding companies that are going to have negative events and being able to select companies that are not greenwashing, much to your point and to Linda's point in the article. Yeah, per perfect. So yeah, so we could have dig deep into this greenwashing thing, which is such a big topic. Uh, oh, but... another one I wanted to mention, though, that I like very much, by the way, is STNC by Bill Davis, Stance Capital's ETF. Stance is, again, known to go very deeply into the companies to pair out greenwashing and investigate and get people who are making a true impact to, make, to try to make the world a better place. Yeah, thank you for uh, these uh, very interesting insights. Uh, the audience will love to know more about that, of course. But in the end, uh, tell us about this value engine you have. What is this value engine uh, uh, company and what does it do? Well, value engine is a quantitative analytics service sort of modeled upon the lines of value line, which is a fundamental quantity, uh, analytics service since 1933 in the US, but value engine is fully quantitative. Instead of having a staff of 130 analysts, we have four people, me, myself, the founder, Paul, and two other quants. And we um, uh, rank over 6,000 US and 1,000 Canadian stocks and uh, uh, over 600 uh, US and Canadian ETFs. And we hope to be expanding that and eventually uh, have European and, uh, and uh, Asian companies in there within the next three years. But uh, it's been around since 1999. It uses fully quantitative methods to rank stocks between one and five, five being the most attractive, one being the least attractive. They're, uh, on point and also on a risk basis, whereas where the ESG ratings are coming in. And, um, uh, uh, oh, an another provider, and how could I forget them, is ISS ESG, who's our partner on providing these ratings in here. Sorry about not mentioning uh, so before ISS. No problem. <laughs> ISS is already quite famous. And, and uh, yeah, so, so this is how you, so it's basically based on this, uh, uh, this matrix you have, you read these uh, companies from one to five uh, based on the risk and also based on ESG. And ISS right, ESG. is and the on, one. Uh, and on the timeliness of their uh, valuation in the market versus what their true valuation should be hmm. and uh, what, what the expected year ahead and two years ahead earnings uh, forecasts are versus uh, how they're being priced by the market and with the, uh, the, the momentum of the industry, momentum of the stock, all these kinds of factors. Hmm. Yeah, I'm afraid uh, it was so interesting discussion, but all good things come to an end. 
and i would uh, say that some other time we can sit again and uh, uh, sit uh, again and dig longer on these topics because they are so interesting this world of etf and uh, esg married with etf this is really really nice uh, topic but uh, but um, <laughs> we 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 have this uh, you, you know internet is all of uh, all about short uh, short span of attention and uh, 22 minutes podcast 20 to 22 is what we are normally having um and i'm sorry to let you go and uh, thank you very much for uh, coming to the program today and uh, let's sit again some other time thank you marvelous thank you for being such a nice uh, nice host and for inviting me on sonny thank you herbert thank you